All right. We're live. Another episode of Monero Talk. Hey, uh, hey. How's it going, Mitchell? Today we have Mitchell Kravitz Thayer. Uh, he's a member of the Monero Research Lab, um, among other things. Uh, do you want to give a quick uh, intro and background? Yeah, sure. So I joined the space about two years ago. Uh, st started, like, I think, like a lot of people on Reddit, just learning around. Um, eventually moved into kind of Monero Research Lab, um, learning there. And, you know, it's funny. I actually remember when I first joined, I understood like 2% of what is going on. And as I've been hanging out, um, picking up a lot more of ways that I can contribute kind of with my data science toolkit. Um, and so kind of like my experience working with it has been a lot of looking for basically anything I can visualize, anything I can model, and anything we can detect, kind of is what falls into my wheelhouse. Um, and so yeah, I've been I've been hanging out with the research lab for about a year. Um, I also kind of have a side lab on nonsense that does uh, broader parts of the ecosystem. And then I, during the day, I don't know if people know this, I actually run a fellowship at Insight Data Science. Uh, it's like a seven week program to help people transition into blockchain engineering. So I um, have a whole bunch of different kind of projects up in the air. Yeah, I was I was looking at your LinkedIn. Um, <laughs> definitely uh, a lot of things going on. What so what is this fellowship thing exactly? And, and yeah, how's so, that going? Oh, it's great. So the fellowship actually the first cohort starts on Monday. Um, so it's a seven week program out in San Francisco, and uh, as fellows come in, it's we spend the first four weeks doing a lot of like coming up with project ideas, brainstorming. The fellows come from. Uh, a very mixed background. It's a lot of professional software engineers, um, postdoctoral academic researchers, uh, a handful of people with different backgrounds that have just hacked their way into the space. And so kind of the common thread is that these are people who started to pick up some domain knowledge and kind of have the right skill set and want to make that jump into like full-time blockchain engineering and working in the decentralized consensus space. So it's a seven-week program. We spend the first four weeks doing these projects. Um, and I plug people into industry experts and alumni who help them out with the technical stuff, with the product stuff. And then in the last uh, portion, we do a whole ton of professional and career development. So we help the fellows with their LinkedIn, their GitHub, their resume. So kind of by the time they get to the end of week seven, they have a totally polished project, demo, slide deck, GitHub, LinkedIn, resume, and they're like ready to hit the job market. And then as I've been going through, um, I've met with about 30 companies in the Valley that are hiring for blockchain engineers. And so throughout the program, we kind of bring them in to introduce themselves. And the fellows actually, we send them it's kind of a three-part process. The companies come in, they do a little intro, the fellows can ask questions. Then later the fellows actually go to the company's offices and demo. So it's like we get you right inside the door face-to-face -face with a tech team hiring manager. So you can show your spiel, answer questions, all of that. And then after the program, they just go through the interview process, whatever that regular, um, you know, some companies do phone screen, interview, on-site, co-hack, all of that. Um, yeah, so I do the whole all the way from like getting through the education and then not just throwing them out on the street, but also helping them get settled into the right career afterwards. That sounds amazing. So it's really fun. It starts, starts Monday. So we're ready to kick it off. Oh, so this, you haven't gone through it yet. Has there been around or? We just started uh, putting it together in September. Uh, yeah. It was when I came on board to launch it. And so the first actual cohort, you know, 20 fellows show up on Monday uh, and we're actually going to then kick off the actual program. That's there was cool. a lot of legwork ahead of time, uh, getting all the companies that were interested in hiring the fellows, um, connecting with all the network, the industry experts, the alumni, all of that to put together a really solid program for when they get here. That's awesome. Is it, so is it funded by those companies? Is that, is there a, mm -hmm. is that a yeah, problem? so 
the the sponsor companies fund the program. Um, we never charge the fellows a dime. And what we found is that by not having a single financial barrier, it actually lets us get the widest, most diverse, most skilled uh, talent pool. And you know, and then especially that lets us bring in a lot of new people. I don't know if you're out in the valley. There's a lot of the times it's the same people, same resumes circulating between like five companies. Okay. And so we bring in a lot of like really new people, fresh ideas, and kind of help them get connected. Wow, that sounds extremely uh useful i mean it is that is that being done in other areas uh are you guys like kind of like mimicking uh other fellowships or is this something unique that you guys just started so insight has been around for six years um we actually now have locations in five different cities and that model of basically the common thread is we do data science uh data engineering artificial intelligence health data science data pm and the common thread is that these are we're taking people that have this amazing skill set but not quite the career hop and we're helping them do that like last five percent transition into the specialized engineering field so that model kind of that educational model we have a lot of experience with and a lot of success with and then this is the first time actually applying that in the like blockchain domain um so that's so that's starting out in silicon valley uh because that's where our headquarters are and so it's easier to try that where we've got all the support from the staff and whatnot i will don't hold me to this uh tentatively looking at also having remote versions coming up in september um oh, wow. so so we'll hopefully then be able to make that more accessible so is is any of this monero focused or i mean i hear you using the word blockchain is it more of general blockchain stuff or are you guys specifically getting into into monero and bitcoin or the insight fellowship is very much project agnostic um so blockchain technology is also like dags any kind of decentralized consensus system um of course one of the things we do is project seeds so the fellows spend the whole first week bouncing around ideas you know um, it's coming up with a thousand ideas and shooting down a thousand ideas until we find the like two dozen gems. But we also have a couple of project seeds, which are initiatives, kind of internal initiatives that we think could be valuable for the ecosystem. And several of those would specifically be valuable for Monero. So ways we can optimize the network, uh, ways we can optimize uh, churn and different kind of like transaction and network topologies. Um, a handful of projects that will probably get applied out there. Very cool. So yeah, let's get into it. So it's specifically with Monero. Um, I mean, mm -hmm. it looks like you've worked on a lot of different things. Do you want to try to go through some of those? And yeah, sure. Um, let me think kind of the best way to like organize and summarize. So I want to talk about dynamic block size with you. I want to get. I want to. Yeah, I guess I, I can like kind it. of run through the kind of a lot of my work boy does boil down into the visualize detect model, and so kind of. Where I, one of the places I started out, which actually brings together detection and visualization, was uh, starting the Nonsense Archival Network. Previously, Monero Archival Project uh, co-launched with Neptune Research, and we collected this very unique data set that we retained often uh, orphan blocks, orphan transactions, um, you know, real timestamps. I don't know if this is kind of common knowledge, but if you look at the timestamps in the Monero blocks, they're kind of garbage. Um, there's this like plus minus 400 second window. And a lot of the times you'll see, we'll get a block that was timestamped like a minute or two previously, even though it was just broadcast, or we'll actually even see blocks that are timestamped from the future. Um, and if you go onto the Monero chain, I kid you not, go like find a block explorer and poke around. 2% of Monero blocks are what I call Merlin blocks, where the timestamp of one block is actually before the timestamp of the height 
previous. Um, so a lot of, so kind of where I got in was looking at that and like visualizing, trying to understand what's going on here. Uh, are people trying to game the difficulty algorithm? Is this some kind of, uh, does this give anybody an advantage? And that actually led me to investigating selfish mining. So this comes back to, again, something you can detect. Um, and selfish mining is where, let's say you and I are both miners. And so we're, I'm working on height five and you're working on height five and I solve it. Normally you would expect me to broadcast and we would both start working on height six, right? But what I can do instead is I can keep it to myself and I start working on block six. Meanwhile, you're burning hash rate on an old block five. And then I dump both of my blocks at the same time. Boom, five, six. Now I'm the longest chain. And while I was mining six, you were wasting energy on a, an old five. So kind of looking at detecting that and we're actually setting up automatic detection systems that should bridge over to IRC if there's little like significant reorgs, all of that. Um, so that was a lot of what got me kind of like moving into it, this timestamp spoofing, how that connects to mining phenomenon, all of that. Uh, you you may have run into, and this is more the visualization scheme, kind of the, the nonce patterns that made the rounds in January and February. Um, so looking at, you would expect the nonces in the box since they're just a general random number that brings the block hash below, uh, that brings the proof of work below some threshold. You'd expect them to be kind of randomly distributed. But we noticed uh, with the presence of kind of specialized mining equipment that you get different patterns that show up in, in the nonces. So went into a study of that that actually had a lot of implications where this number that was supposed to be meaningless actually revealed a whole lot of narratives. People mining from the bottom up, people mining random nonces, people that start at the top end of the nonce range and mine down. Uh, all of these different ASICs that batch out and uh, kind of mine parallel numbers. Uh, so, sorry, I don't know if this makes sense with hand gestures or not. Probably if you've read the article, it does. If not, so sorry. Um, but anyways, so then getting in kind of into the modeling thing, um, back when I was working on Mastering Monero in September, I was editing, I don't know, I think it's chapter five or chapter, one, one, of, the, one of the middle of the book chapters, and I was writing about the dynamic block size. Of, oh, awesome. There we awesome. go. Yeah, and so I was writing about the dynamic block size algorithm, and it says, okay, so... Uh, every every hundred blocks, you can basically actually. Sorry, let me speak more precisely. So every time a miner goes to mine a block, they need to look at what is the maximum size they're allowed to mine, and that's determined algorithmically. I'm going to start with referring to our old algorithm. So what we had between 2014 and 2018, the rule was you could mine a block as large as twice the median of the last hundred blocks. So if the last 100 blocks are about uh, 100 kilobytes, you could then mine one. Uh, well, it's penalty-free up to 300 kilobytes, uh, which for context is like a handful of transactions. And if you want to exceed 300 kilobytes, you would then have to pay a penalty in terms of the Coinbase reward. And also, uh, you're capped out then at twice the median of the last 100. Uh, before I go on, does that make sense yeah let, let's let's just zoom out for a second if you just yeah want yeah, to yeah. Give a feel quick... free to cut me off I, it's easy for me yeah, to like go down in the weeds yeah. but no but look, this is good let's focus on dynamic block size which is uh where you're headed um do you want to just give a quick overview of what dynamic block size actually is and what its purpose is why why we have dynamic blocks versus uh you know static blocks yeah yeah uh, actually what, what that's a good place to start okay. so there's a fundamental question in any decentralized consensus network or blockchain system, which is how big can be the parcels of data that we're passing along? And 
some cryptocurrencies have taken an approach where they have a fixed block size. So they say, um, you know, back in the day, Bitcoin, it was one megabyte. You could mine up to however many transactions you could fit in one megabyte. Unfortunately, then it started to hit a bottleneck where the transaction volume was exceeding kind of what you could fit into the blocks. And that leads to undesirable conditions such as transactions getting backed up or fees climbing too high. There's just a whole bunch of downsides. Um, and so one way to approach that is to then try to figure out, well, should we change the fixed block size? And people who've been around for a while know that that was a very contentious debate. Uh, one megabyte block versus two megabyte block or SegWit or eight megabyte. Um, and it involves just a lot of kind of debate around really where you want to fix that size and where you want to limit. Because block size, it has value for like anti-spam attacks. You don't want to be processing a million transactions a second. Um, so, but instead of trying to do this guesswork where we're like, okay, well, we think a one megabyte block will be good. And if we hit a brick wall, we'll change it. Uh, Monero took a different approach, which is allowing the block size to be dynamic. So up to 300 kilobytes. Um, and for context, Monero transactions are around two kilobytes. Uh, so up to about 300 kilobytes, you can just fill the block that large and there's no problem. And then if there's higher transaction volume, uh, the dynamic block size allows that to slowly increase. And, ooh, I wonder, I have a whiteboard, I don't have markers. Um, anyways, so the point is, when you go to mine each block, you would look at the kind of history and you would see, okay, well, if we had enough transaction volume that drives up the volume of uh, the block size, then you can keep letting it creep up. Um, and then, you know, if traffic drops off, then your block size goes back down. And this is designed to keep things at a reasonable kind of running level generally, but allow spikes, for example, on December 23rd when people are doing their last minute holiday shopping. Um, you can then accommodate a higher transaction volume. So that's kind of that's kind of the intent, the why we have a dynamic block size and then very functionally what it's designed to do. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. So, I mean, the, the idea is that the the block size is supposed to expand and contract with the the as the network is being used more or less, right? Precisely, precisely. Um, and I guess you you want an algorithm in place where um, I guess it can't be gamed for certain reasons, right? Mm -hmm. or, or or I guess we could get into uh, attacks as well, right? Because it kind of opens us up to potential attacks. So, like in theory, dynamic block size is great, but then you need to build, I guess build it in a way where it can't be manipulated. Is that, is that yeah. fair? Yeah, yep. And so uh, the the way it was intentionally, that that is correct. And the way it was intentionally designed or uh, initially designed was, and here we're gonna think about the incentives. So a miner wants to include more transactions in a block because they get more fees. But from the outside point of view, we don't mi want miners to just mine thousand transactions in a block and you know blow up the you know everyone's nodes and whatnot so uh the the coinbase reward uh which is about three monero per block right now give or take um if you are making a larger block you actually forfeit a little bit of that reward so a miner can be in a position where there's a lot of transactions and i pack a block to like 300 kilobytes and then i say okay, do I want to grab a handful more and collect those fees, but then I lose part of my Coinbase reward, or do I want to keep my full Coinbase reward and move on with that? And under uh, typical miner behavior, uh, some people call this rational miner behavior, 
they tend to make responsible decisions and probably want to keep most of the coin base and not throw that away unless because the fees probably won't cover it. Now, that's how it's supposed to work. Um, and then, and that's, let's see how the incentive structure is supposed to be, that the giving up the Coinbase reward is what incentivizes the miners to not create huge blocks. That's kind of the, the thesis. And so that's, as discussed in Mastering Monero, I kind of talk about how you can make a block that's up to twice as big. That's your hard cap. And twice as big as the last uh, 100. And you give up the penalty if you do that. And so what I realized was, okay, so right now the Monero block reward is only three or four Monero, which uh, the exchange rate was down. So it's like $100, $200. And the realization I had was, well, what if I wanted to mess with the miners? I could create a whole bunch of transactions and I would give them a lot of money in the fees. And here, this is not a rational user. This is not a user who is trying to um, optimize how much Monero they have. I'm putting myself in the shoes of someone who just wants to watch the network burn, uh, whether that's uh, a whale who has taken out a short and it stands to profit from Monero going down or some kind of agency that has an alternative they would rather uh, have in place or just someone who likes to watch things set on fire. Uh, if someone had a ton of money and wanted to mess this up, they could basically make these sets of transactions that have, uh, say, eight, eight Monero, 20 Monero in their collective fees. So now a miner looks at that and they say, okay, so I can, I've got these transactions do I want to grab these other ones? Well, I will forfeit my three Monero Coinbase reward, but if the fees are 20 Monero, I'm going to take that, right? I would rather mine that big block with 20 Monero to forget the three Monero Coinbase. Um, and so this is like a very, very much an edge case. Um, and it's an irrational kind of behavior. It could occur um, either as an attack or perhaps by accident, right? So what this fundamentally boils down to is our infrastructure can handle a certain number of transactions, right? And over time, our infrastructure gets slightly stronger. We get uh, computers get faster, internet connections get faster, all of that, right? And we have something in our protocol that is going to set a cap on how fast the, the blockchain can expand. And ideally what you want is if your infrastructure has this capacity, sorry, am I pointing to the left or the right here? Uh, to the right. Great. Okay. Right. So if you uh, if you want your infrastructure, you as your infrastructure grows, you want your um, network capacity to match that. There's two scenarios you don't want. the The first is where your infrastructure is growing, but you have like a one megabyte block cap or something, and so you're not even using that infrastructure. The other thing that you don't want is if your infrastructure is up to here, and all of a sudden you have, say, Visa level transactions. You know, if we can support 300. Uh, in a block, and Visa does uh, like sixteen hundred per second. So you don't you you want those to be matched. You don't want one to exceed the other. And what I realized was that if you get to this weird edge case of people, uh, whether it's just uh, benign users who are trying to push transactions through or an attacker, if they can drive that uh, network traffic beyond the infrastructure capacity, that that would kind of like critically start disabling nodes. Um, and the, have you ever heard that parable where um, a king wanted to say thanks to someone and said, oh, do you want this like uh, barrels of rice or whatever, wine or something? And the, the wise person, she said, well, take a chessboard and on the first day, give me one grain of rice. And on the next day, give me two grains of rice. And the next day, four, eight, 16, 32. And the point of the parable is that once you get to two to the 64, it's just an astronomically large number. And that's essentially what I realized happens here is 
your median of 100 blocks, we have a two minute block time. So that's uh, 200 minutes, about three hours. Every three hours, you could double the block size. So you can pump it up to 300 kilobytes for free. And then after three, actually half that time, because it's the median, after an hour and a half, you can bump it up to 600 kilobytes. Hour and a half, you're up to a megabyte. Hour and a half. So you would have uh, like eight of these doubling periods within a single day or 14. Uh, a lot of doubling periods. So what, what, what I observed was that if you do have a lot of transactions with a lot of fees, you would end up just totally overrunning the infrastructure. Uh, we would get up to about 500 megabyte blocks, which uh, would be, first of all, in theory, if the network was handling these 500 megabyte blocks after a day, uh, the blockchain would be going by 300 gigabytes per day. Uh, but there's no way that the nodes could actually be passing around and validating 500 megabyte blocks in two minutes. Uh, so anyways, long story short, the concern was just uh, runaway adoption or an attack exceeding our infrastructure capacity. And so what we did was ending up adding uh, a longer term um, a longer term term, it's the only way to say that, that, a term that captures the longer behavior. And so we have still this 100 median kind of block uh, for, for quick adjustments. But then we also added, I believe it's 100,000 block median. Uh, so I want to say that's about six months. I could be wrong. Correct me in the comments. Um, but now we have kind of this longer behavior that makes sure that the whole thing doesn't ramp away from us in like a day and a half. So that that's been implemented in the last in the the network upgrade. Yeah, we upgraded to uh, version fourteen at block seventeen eighty eight triple zero, and which was like March 9th. and so that implemented uh, the dual median that has a short term and a long term. Do it's you, not. Oh, go ahead. Do you think it's gonna? We're gonna con need to make more adjustments as as we get more feedback from the network and learn more things or? Oh yeah, definitely. So I consider the, the dual median approach to be uh, strictly a short-term patch. Um, what, where, where we ended up with was I kind of like discovered this in September, uh, did some modeling in late 2018, uh, realized we were kind of in trouble in January. And this uh, is, we were, is this the big bang, this is called the big bang attack? Is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, if it's malicious, it's a big bang attack. I call it Icarus adoption if it's accidental. Um, but either way, same effect. Um, so we kind of were in a crunch where the code freeze was in like a week or something. It was coming up very soon. And we're like, well, we don't want to leave this until October 2019. So we kind of came up with something that was short, sweet, kind of like puts in a safeguard that makes sure the network doesn't blow up over the next six months. Um, it's not super sophisticated um, and it's not as flexible. So it's, I think, just intended as a six month patch. And I'm actually really excited because I have like all these new paradigms I want to look into for uh, the long term solution. And I could, so like a few of those. Uh, one would be, well, okay, sorry, I could, I could like rattle through a couple of these. I don't know uh, if that's, if that's useful. Yeah. Um, one of them that, I've been interested in is I think smooth and Saray kind of put this together is right now we have this fundamental problem that it's multiplicative. It's you're always allowed to do two something times the last, whatever something times the last, whatever. And anytime you have a multiplicative function that's being, uh, you know, maxed out, it's going to have exponential growth. 
And what they realized was, okay, well, what if we did linear instead? What if instead of you know twice the median or 1.4 times the median of the last 100, if you were allowed to add you know 300 kilobytes or something for each block, then instead of this like wicked exponential growth, you turn it into linear growth. Uh, so that's one option. Um, that by the way, all of these are like still pending modeling, still pending uh, a lot of discussion. I'm not planning on putting any of them in tomorrow. Uh, another one that I've been interested in is if we were to set a budget at each fork and say like, okay, we're gonna make kind of a social contract to our miners that between now and October, we're not gonna let the blockchain grow by more than two terabytes. And so then there would kind of be this two terabyte budget and miners could kind of use that as they wanted. So if we get a big spike, we could, we could take care of that. Um, but you can't let things just like keep blowing up indefinitely. Um, one that I definitely haven't worked all the kinks out, and this is more of an out there idea, would be if we added an encrypted voting feature, because who knows what the infrastructure can support? Answer, the infrastructure, the miners. So there's potentially a version where the miners start voting when they mine a block, they say, I can handle up to you know, 10 megabyte blocks right now. And that way, as the infrastructure increases, they can just start indicating that in the blocks. Now, as a privacy person and a data scientist who is like looking for anomalies or signals anywhere, I would not want that to be plain text voting because then I would start seeing, um, I would look at a block and I'd be like, okay, well, this block is the same number as these ones. So they're mined by the same entity. And I think they're using this software. And you know, that, so it would need to be encrypted voting. So I've been playing around with like, can we bin it so that, uh, every 100 blocks, each miner is voting. And then at the end, we do some encrypted algebra and see what we want to be the block size for the next 100. Um, and so that then puts a lot of bear. It, it, I think it puts the control of the block size so the people that actually know what the answer should be. Um, and you can't like Sybil attack that by overvoting because the vote is tied to the hash rate. Um, but there, that's, there's a lot to work out there. And then you could also potentially do a version, kind of a separate idea, where uh, you know, transaction volume isn't necessarily a good indication of network activity because I could in the background during this call open up, you know, a script and just start generating 10 transactions per second. And that doesn't actually represent increased adoption. Um, number of nodes, that can also be spoofed. So you don't want to use that to increase, the, you know, monitor adoption. I have like uh, the Monero, uh, our, our archival network has like six nodes, you know, so you don't want to do that. Um, but hash rate is pretty hard to spoof. So I think there could be a version where we use hash rate to, as a proxy for infrastructure and then kind of base the block size off of that. Um, again, there's a lot of edge cases that opens up there. Really everything I just listed has edge cases and attack surfaces um, and a lot to consider. Um, I think Saray has a cool idea for, uh, what I won't go into details, but for like neurons, uh, modeling that so you can have a spike, but then reset. Um, there's all kinds of stuff on the table. So now that we've got this like short patch in for the next six months, and we don't have this like existential fear of the Monero blockchain being two terabytes tomorrow, <laughs> we can then go around and kind of discuss these ideas with a little bit more leisure. What is your your take overall on dynamic block size versus you know what Bitcoin is doing and having their their fixed block size? Um, do you think is is Bitcoin is that a critical flaw in Bitcoin or can it or can that work for them? Do you need dynamic block sizes? I. I think that 
with the adoption of SegWit, uh, you know, state channels, Lightning Network, all of that, it may be viable to cram a lot of transactions into those small blocks. Um, so uh, it may be that, uh, at least for the near future, the uh, fixed block size can accommodate the transaction volume. Um, I do, and this is largely based on intuition more so than anything else. I do think a dynamic block size algorithm, once we've gotten it figured out, uh, is a little bit more natural way to deal with that supply, uh, kind of supply and demand. And um, right now we don't have a good way to stick a lightning network on Monero or these second layer scaling solutions. Um, so, and I think some people are working on that, but by and large, we're not like, we're not in the next six months adding a lightning network. So because we don't have that way of addressing the scaling, I think we kind of, we have to have the dynamic block size. Mm -hmm. um, and when, when you know, the, I mean, the, the biggest argument against Monero or uh, FUD it, that you hear is that, you know, Monero can't scale. Um, what's, what's your reaction to that when, when people say that? I'm not... It's hard to scale. I will definitely say so. Um, tr privacy comes at a cost, right? A Bitcoin transaction is like 250 bytes. Um, uh, so is like an unshielded Zcash transaction. Is in the same ballpark. Um, having private transactions that costs basically two things. One of them is privacy, right? You're gonna wait for the node to sync, all of that, and then the other one is actual just disk space. Um, it takes, you know, uh, on the order of kilobytes instead of hundreds of bytes to make a transaction. So that definitely makes scaling harder, um, just because we're pushing around a lot more. I, I can't. I guess I can't really take a, a stance one way or the other. I, I've been optimistic that, like, so from my experience, just like doing, you know, five dollar transactions for coffee and stuff, like. Uh, it works fine, but that's when the network uh, volume is very low. I think that if everything scales up and our, we have a, the proper dynamic block size algorithm and the infrastructure, which in this case means network connections, validating slash processing power and hard disk space track along, um, I think it could work. It, like To me, I don't, I don't see this thing of like, oh, we're going to hit a brick wall where it gets too big. Um, I think as long as the infra follows the use, we should be fine. <clears throat> um, and people are also looking into other ways to optimize and people are always looking at ways to optimize. Um, you know, we shrunk bulletproofs, uh, a while ago and well, actually we implemented bulletproofs to shrink the rain proofs, uh, a fork ago. And then now we, in the most recent fork made bulletproofs even smaller. Uh, people are looking into pruning, which would also kind of help optimize this. So there's, there's a lot on the table that we're working on scaling and, you know, uh, it's always hopefully down the road will replace ring signatures. And, and I'm hoping that what we replace them with will use less space because you know, ring signatures, you then have to like reference 11, uh, 11 inputs and all of their or 11 outputs and all of that. So it's also possible that as we just upgrade the fundamental privacy technologies, we may stumble into a more scalable thing, or it could be wrong. It might be less scalable depending on what we implement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want to ask, do you have any uh, thoughts on ring signatures specifically on, what you see being the future of, of like what what is this potential uh, replacement or 
how could they potentially be made more efficient? Uh, do you have any opinions there? So the in terms of like replacing ring signatures, that's kind of, I leave that to the cryptographers, Sarang and Saray, um, and a lot of the developers are on that. One of my major foci right now is actually making our current ring signatures safer. Um, and so some ways that I've been working on that are looking at decoy uh, decoy selection. So when I go to construct a Monero transaction, uh, I have the true output that I'm spending, and then I go and I grab uh, 10 decoys from anywhere on the, well, from the blockchain. And then I'm gonna mix them all up, and I'm gonna say, here's the transaction. Uh, one of these 11 is where the funds, funds truly came from. Unfortunately, this is where statistics can come in and kind of rain on everybody's party. Because, so imagine um, that most people are doing transactions kind of like, you know, they, they get on an exchange, they move it to a wallet, they buy something, that store cashes it, you know, things move along on kind of a day, two day scale. If I go to make my transaction, you know, uh, you sent me funds this morning, and then I go to send them to someone, and I pick any 10 decoys out of the entire four or five year history of Monero, almost all of them are going to be older, right? Like if we've got a, a millions and I've just picked like one of the most recent ones, almost certainly if I just pick them randomly, which I call this uniform, uh, you can tell with pretty good certainty that probably the most recent one was the spend output. Uh, this is called the guest newest heuristic. Uh, it was originally published in one of Monero Research Lab's own papers and then uh, was also re-mentioned in, uh, is it Mosier or Miller? Uh, the empirical traceability paper. And so it turns out that really how you select these decoys is crucially, crucially important. And any kind of deviation from this can start to give things away. Um, so there's kind of like two things I've been working on to address that. So far, does the way that I framed that problem make sense? Definitely, yeah. Okay, cool. So one thing that I've been building, and this is uh, public in the nonsense repository, is a really quick really quick piece of code. It's like two or three lines, and it can catch if a transaction was created by this uniform decoy selection. Um, ideally, what we want to see, the, the, the correct way for a transaction to be constructed, about half of the decoys would be from like the last two days, and then some would be older, so that you're capturing a lot of this very fast movement, but you're also leaving room for people to spend old Monero. So if you have this, uh, if you have the correctly the correctly generated transaction, then if you look at the like average or the the median age, it should be like two days, right? That's that's the goal. If you've correct if you've made it correctly, the average is two days from the from the most recent output. If you have a uniform transaction, if you have one that was corrected in, uh, constructed incorrectly, that median age is going to be like a year and a half. So it turns out that detecting incorrectly constructed transactions is pretty trivial. You look at the ages of your decoys, you subtract off the offset, and then you take the median. If the median is longer than, say, a week or two weeks, you know that it's incorrectly constructed. It's going to probably reveal the true spent output, and then that damages that decoy for all future and past transactions because you're showing when it was actually spent. Um, so that's kind of one of the things that I'm working on now. I already have a proof of concept where I can feed in a transaction and it will flag it if it's incorrectly constructed. Um, and I think one of the things I would like to do um, is request for this to be implemented at the consensus level in the next upgrade, because we're at a point where like I could 
pick you or any kind of random viewer, I could show like three or four transactions, be like, this was right, this was right, these are what they look like when they're wrong. And you could literally page through and go, right, wrong, 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 right, 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 wrong, wrong, like just by eye. And so like, if it's that, if it's that obvious and it's always revealing a true spent output, we should just block that at the consensus level. And what that would do effectively is people using the correct wallet, they would never notice it because the correct wallet generates it correctly, the transactions go through. And if a developer working on a third-party wallet tries to take shortcuts or doesn't read the specs or just goes, well, heck, I'll select from anywhere, then their transactions will be rejected by the network. They would have to go back and actually fix their code before they can start broadcasting. Um, and so this is really not just to protect those transactions, but to protect everybody because other people use those as decoys. And so you don't want to you don't want to get into that. And a lot of people. Uh, I've mentioned this like once or twice and some there's often concerns of like, well, wait, 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 but it's supposed to be randomly, randomly generated. So how can you verify it? And I, and I really have to emphasize it just because something is uh, selected uh, randomly, or, uh, pseudo randomly according to some rules or generated, sorry, uh, not randomly, just because something is non-deterministic does not make it non-verifiable. Yep. Did you meet? I think you muted. Hello? Can you hear me? Yeah, you're back. Um, so the notion would be like, I could ask you to pick uh, 10 numbers on the range 0 to 100 and weight them high. And even though you're picking them would be non-deterministic, um, I could still look at that and verify like that you didn't pick 0 through 10. Uh, so that's it. I don't think I can hear you. Can you say something real quick? Hello? Oh, okay, never mind. Yeah, back. Okay. Anyways, yeah, so that's one of the things I'm working on. And then very related to that, and I'll just mention this for like 20 seconds, is transactions to have multiple inputs are uh, fatally bad from a statistics point of view in the sense that if I'm looking, even if the rings are constructed correctly, so let's say you have an old wallet from September, uh, September 2016 and you go to spend those Monero, and you take like three of your outputs and put them into one transaction. What's gonna happen is even if each of those ring signatures is generated correctly, you know, you've got like a bunch of new transactions and then one member from September, 2016. Next ring signature, uh, a bunch of new ones and then one from September, 2016, and the same one. And so looking at the transactions, again, it's like obvious to the naked eye. I could teach anyone to spot this. You just look down that row and you go, oh, Okay, I can tell someone is cleaning out a wallet from September 2016. Uh, this is the transaction where all of those outputs were spent. So anytime they were used before, it was a decoy. Anytime they're used in the future, it's a decoy. Um, and that's actually a really challenging problem to solve. And so uh, that's something I've been working on, whether that, um, there, I think there's some low hanging fruit. So it, part of it would be try to select like your oldest and your newest transactions. Don't just grab a bunch from September, 2016. And again, this should all be wallet backend, not like user decision. Um, so making more efficient algorithms for selecting uh, which outputs get, get included. And then also just how do you construct the ring signatures? We shouldn't construct three independent ring signatures when we know that there's dependencies between the, between the inputs. Anyways, that, that I'm still a ways out from fixing that one. So, and we could expect to see some of these changes implemented in the next uh, upgrade. I'm I'm hoping to have the uniform decoy selection blocker implemented in the next um, 
in the next algorithm or in the next iteration, it's really only like three lines of code. Um, you can set it to be very conservative, like uh, a median of a year. And so you're going to have a very, very, very rare false positive rate. Um, I think it should be pretty uncontroversial. I'm basically going to say, can somebody show me a single transaction that was constructed correctly and has a median age of more than a year? And I don't think anyone is going to be able to find a single transaction that has a median of a year and was correctly constructed. And so I think when we pass that test, hopefully it'll be a pretty non-controversial thing, thing to include. Sounds Fingers good. crossed. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, um, so it sounds like we're going to be working on ring signatures for for quite a while before we actually move on to the the next thing beyond ring signatures, right? I mean, uh, yeah, we're, it's we're kind not of swapping them out anytime soon. Is that? I, I not to my knowledge, not soon, like yeah. in the next months or anything. Um, it's kind of the we spend some time more so the cryptographers kind of researching the new technologies coming out and figuring which ones we could implement but in the meanwhile we are also like all hands on deck getting ring signatures as tightened up as possible and they've come a long way they've come a long way in the past couple of years but can always make it better it's kind of this it's almost this arms race of figuring out okay well what's the new heuristic okay oh i can i can identify all the whatever by using the wrong median. And then how do we change the protocol so that that heuristic weakness doesn't happen? And then I go look for the next kind of heuristic statistical weakness and we figure out how to block that. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of fun. My my entire like evening weekend hobby is like break Monero and then fix it so other people can't break it that way. <laughs> I want to jump back to dynamic block sizes just for a second. So in terms of in terms of fees, um, as as the network grows and there's more transactions on the network, uh, fees will actually be coming down for the users. Is that correct? Because of the fact that more there'll be more transactions squeezed into a block. Yeah, there's there's some kind of mechanism in our fee market which I have not dug too deep into the fee market. I you know, I glanced at it during mastering Monero, um, but the there is a mechanism where as the block size increases, I think users get kind of a discount on fees. Um, I don't know it at a detailed level enough to explain it. Um, I actually, I have been fixated on fees in a different way. Uh, and I'm gonna actually, I'm gonna stick this out as a blurb of something I want in the next update. So right now you can specify fees out to like, I don't know, six or seven significant figures. I could send a transaction that has like 0 0.03, Three one eight nine six two four. You know, as a transaction fee. Um, first of all, I don't think there's any reason we need eight significant figures in fees. Um, I think that leaks a lot of information, right? I can already take the blockchain and I can separate it into transactions constructed by wallets that use a few significant figures and wallets that use a lot of significant figures, and then I could even go in there and start looking at okay. Uh, let's say I have, uh, I'm scraping Monarujo, CakeWallet, XWallet, and I'm keeping track of uh, every time, what are they recommending per weight for you know, your medium, your high, your low fee? And then I can go to the blockchain and I can look at these extremely unnecessarily high precision plain text fees and I can actually start to peg. I think this user was using this wallet with this setting. This user is using this wallet with this setting. And I can start to looking at the blockchain decloak users wallet software, uh, which I think is highly undesirable. And 
so uh, the solution I would like to see for this, and I can't take credit, someone on Reddit had this like very elegant little uh, suggestion, was what if we only allowed one significant figure for fees? So it can still be 0.1 or 0.0004 or 0.0009, right? You can do big fees, you can do small fees, you can tweak them, but that way you kind of like cap the information leakage at one figure. And so that would prevent me from sitting down and scanning the blockchain and decloaking everyone's software because it would be, uh, much more granular. So um, that's that's where I've been focused with fees. I haven't really been looking at the, uh, the crypto economic side of it. Mm -hmm. uh, along those lines too, in terms of kind of uh, decloaking and um, with this most recent upgrade, there was uh, encryption data that's now being added, dummy encryption data that's now being added in each transaction. Yeah, yeah. Can you, can you explain that and what the purpose of that was? And mm -hmm. So there used to be, um, by the way, shout out to Justin Samsung Galaxy Player, who I think did a lot of amazing work in mapping this out, uh, really pushing for the issue, documenting uh, why there were issues, why there was a solution, really did a great write-up. Um, but there used to be three different ways you could send in a transaction. So uh, let's say I'm sending a little bit to you. Because you're just, I'm, I'm like, hey, I'm going to send you, uh, you know, 0.2 Monero. And so you're looking for that. So I just send that to you. And I wouldn't need to include any kind of like payment ID or anything like that because you know it's coming from me. But if I go to an exchange or a merchant and I'm going to send them 0.2 Monero, uh, they need to know who it's coming from. And so to give them that piece of information, I would include a payment ID. So now, and you can picture this. Uh, let's say you're at a concert and you're selling t-shirts. And so you got a bunch of people, they're paying you for t-shirts. And so you're going to get a whole ton of transactions coming in that are like, you know, 10 bucks, 10 bucks, 10 bucks, 10 bucks, 10 bucks. And you need to know of the seven people in front of you that said they just paid you $10 and you only received five transactions. Well, who are the five that paid? So that's where the payment IDs come in. And essentially a payment ID then reveals that you're doing a merchant transaction and not a person to person. Um, and then there used to be, uh, an encrypted version and an unencrypted version. So then you're even leaking more information because I know my t-shirt vendor uses unencrypted and I know that my exchange uses encrypted. So now I can be like, okay, well, this seems to be personal. This seems to be, uh, you know, merchant, encrypted, merchant, uncrypted. So it's just one of those, like, uh, it's not a security risk. No one's going to steal your Monero based on it, but it starts to leak information. It lets you partition the transactions in the kind of like, these are coming out of mining pools or here or here. And so, uh, in the long run, I think we want to remove payment IDs. Uh, there's a lot of talk about this, so I'm not like representing the community when I say this. Um, I, I think I think in the long run, we're looking to get rid of payment IDs and just use sub addresses, which are um, a little more computationally expensive, but uh, more secure and leak less information. And but in the meanwhile, we didn't just want to get rid of payment IDs and be like, okay, exchanges, good luck, implement sub addresses. So to kind of like taper that out, instead of having this uh, payment ID box that's either empty, encrypted, or unencrypted, uh, we just forced all of them to be encrypted. Uh, so if I'm sending to an exchange or my t-shirt vendor, I'm going to be encrypting that. And then even if I'm sending a transaction to you, it would just add a dummy encrypted payment ID so that it just looks the same as all of the other transactions. Oh, okay. So the reason we added it to all of them was just to make all of the transactions indistinguishable, which is kind of always the end goal. Gotcha. So now every transaction sent essentially has a payment ID attached to it. 
Mm -hmm. And most of the time, the user, if they're just sending to a friend or whatever, they're not going to even notice it. It's all behind mm -hmm. the scenes. Uh, it only comes into play if you're at a merchant and a merchant says, hey, I need you to include this payment ID. Mm -hmm. Do you see any other, I mean, well, I guess, I mean, the, the it seems like we'll be eliminating these payment IDs, but um, were there any other potential use, use cases for payment IDs or people ever thinking along those lines or? I mean, any to use it as a tool, any other like as a communication tool, or I'm I'm tempted to say no. I know that there is from uh, from Justin, um, maybe also Endogenic contributed um, or Knack. A whole bunch of people put together like a very long document that has like the use cases for all configurations, like pros, cons, use cases for everything. Um, so that document might contain something that I'm glossing over here. But um, off the top of my head, I think in general, uh, sub addresses will be able to provide any slash all of the same functionality that a payment ID would use. Because ultimately, the payment ID is just so I know who the payment is coming from. And I can accomplish that by just giving a, my, one sub address to each person. Mm -hmm. Oh, for, for uh, any listeners who aren't familiar with a sub address means you can have one wallet and I can just generate thousands or millions of addresses and I can give one address to each user. And then when I get an incoming transaction, I can tell which address that came from. So it's like having a whole bunch of PO boxes and I give every single person a different box. So if something shows up, I know who sent it. Yeah, I guess what I thought was, was you know, the fact that you're, you could essentially send a message with the Monero transaction by adding something, by adding you know, a message to your payment ID, but I, I, I guess oh. it, used, it wouldn't make sense to use it for that purpose. I mean, and all the privacy leaks that would come with that, I guess, but I was just, well, I was wondering if it was ever discussed or thought about it. If it's, inc if you were to take the payment ID field and in, you could put it. So supposing that the merchant didn't need a payment ID and I just was sending something to you, I could, I suppose, put like Monero talk is awesome and encrypt that. It's probably too long and encrypt that and send it. And I think to anyone else on the blockchain, it would just look like an encrypted payment ID. Um, and I guess if you, you might be able to see that on your end um, there, I usually get very wary of, um, doing any on-chain messaging because then you start leaking so much information, who's sending messages, how long are they, da 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 da. Um, but Loki, which is a another crypto note project that's like a hybrid proof of work, proof of stake, they have a layer of service nodes that actually they're working on a decentralized messaging app. So that would be messaging based on crypto note, uh, which I'm pretty keenly interested in that. Hmm. Uh, but to my knowledge, I don't think we're looking at implementing that on Monero. Okay. What um let's see what else what else was part of the upgrade that we didn't talk about? Oh, I guess well the uh the proof of work change, obviously that was a that was a big thing. Do you have an op any opinion there? I mean, obviously that's a very hot topic right now in Monero. Uh where we're essentially what strategy we should be taking with ASICs uh is, you know, at what point do we allow ASICs to come back on to the network? Or are we always going to be trying to avoid them? Uh, what do you think is is the best strategy? Yeah. So, um, oh, actually, before we go down the ASIC rabbit hole, there is uh, there is one change. Did we talk about the um, about shrinking the the mask? I don't think. Uh, what one little change that is just like 
very elegant. Um, we had we shrunk transaction size, and it's a total freebie because you need to take uh, the amount of the transaction when you're constructing a transaction. You have the amount of the that you're sending, and then you generate uh, like a, a random a mask, and then you use that to kind of hide what your amount is, and you broadcast that. And previously, the amount where the the value for the amount that field in the block was 32 bytes uh but there's only so many monero so it's like um if you had we uh hold on how do i say this so for the amount of monero that exists in the ecosystem you even if you're putting all of it in a transaction like it wouldn't be bigger than eight bytes and for some reason we were using 32 bytes so you can imagine if you had a parking lot with uh, a thousand parking spaces but they were all um numbered with like eight digit numbers, right? And so all of these parking spaces have a ton of digits and all just easier, easier. And so NAC, uh, KNACCC, was uh, kind of looking at uh, a little project proposed by Ilya and noticed, oh, why are we using this gigantic field to store a small number? And so uh, knocked, off, knocked off some transaction size by saying, well, we only need eight bytes instead of 32. And on top of that, this like mask that's used to obscure the value um, previously, you would be uh, randomly generated and then broadcast along with the transaction. So again, that's 32 bytes added to your transaction and then stuck on the blockchain forever. Uh, NAC realized, well, actually, you can just determine, uh, you can make that deterministically based on a shared secret. And so then you don't need to send it to the other person because the recipient already has a shared secret. So instead of them reading the mask off the blockchain, they just generate it themselves and take it off to see the value. Um, so it was, it's just, I really want to mention, it's a really clever little tweak. It's just two little like freebies to shrink our transaction size. It's a great example of looking at something and always being like, is this the best way? Yeah, this works, it's secure, but is it the best way? Um, so yeah, I just wanted to mention that. I thought it was really cool and Nak uh, explained it to me in more detail last night. So, but anyways, um, no, yeah. That, so that, that is, I, you know, not to, uh, yeah, I think that, that that is uh, indicative of the fact that we have all these smart people constantly looking at this thing and tweaking it and making it more efficient. Mm -hmm. So how, how much did it shrink it by? What are we, what would be? So it took the amount field from 32 bytes down to eight bytes. And then the mask, which you now don't even have to broadcast was another 32 bytes. So 64 minus eight, I guess that would have saved us 46 bytes per transaction, which is pretty non-trivial for a kilobyte transaction. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah, so this whole, the whole crypto note pow tweak, um, that has, that has been a trip, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, I, I, I don't really know, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to listen to the smart people in the community. Um, I mean, it's, it seems like the best, the best idea is to kind of implement this random X as soon as that's ready. As a, as a way to keep the ASICs at bay for as long yeah. as possible. Yeah, and I think... The end um, goal of eventually letting them join the network once we think uh, we're ready, right? In terms of the fact, you, you know, once we think that ASICs will be commoditized, right? To the point yeah. where anybody can kind of plug an ASIC in. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm hoping. So um, the, yeah, what we have been doing... Um, is 
actually, I'm going to like rewind a little bit and start from the ground up because that'll kind of get to where 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 I uh, am going with this. So uh, there's kind of a couple ways to mine Monero. There's CPU and GPU mining uh, that are kind of on the same ballpark of efficiency. And when we want mining to be egalitarian, meaning we want it to be like uh, kind of anyone can hop in, anyone can participate, grab their computer, grab their phone, start contributing to the network security. Excuse me. Um, you want to keep everything kind of on a level playing field. And I define level playing field as unit of mining power, so like hash rate, per unit of energy, right? So if I'm going to pitch in, uh, if I'm going to spend, say, $10 of electricity and I get uh, one unit of mining power and you spend $10 and you get one unit of mining power, right? We're kind of even. And it should be perfectly fine if I want to put in you know, twice as much money and get twice as much mining power, right? That's, that's, that's ideal, it's linear. So if I put in 10 times as much money, I get 10 times as much mining power. Uh, that's kind of the goal. Now, the issue with if that relationship is broken, so let's say um, I pay $10 per unit of mining power, you pay $10 per unit, and then someone shows up and they can get uh, 100 units of mining power for like a cent. Well, now, now we're in trouble. You and I are are burning our electricity bill and having a little bit of contribution. There's someone over there, boom, with just like orders of magnitude more hash rate. Um, so for me, what it ultimately boils down to, whether uh, some situation in the network is fair or not, is not what the chip is. Is that a CPU? Is that a GPU? Is it an FPGA? Is it an ASIC? Right? Those are just types of silicon, right, and different arrangements. What really matters is how much hash rate are you getting per watt of energy or per dollar, essentially the same. Um, now with that framed, that's the issue with ASICs then, is that they get a lot more hash rate, mining power, per amount of energy, in other words, per amount of input dollar. So if we want to restore this to level ground, what we had been doing was saying, okay, well, everyone's got CPU, GPU, and so what we're going to do is we're going to break the ASICs off. And ASICs are like really fast, dumb workers, right? So they can do one thing very, very quickly, but they can't learn something else. Once the chip is written, that's what they're doing. And so what we thought we would do is, well, every six months, we'll just tweak the work. So everyone's CPU and GPU, they can just keep on mining. And all of these ASICs, they're dumb. They can't learn to do something else. So they go in the garbage or start mining other coins. Um, the issue is that like six month timeline doesn't quite work out. Um, and I actually was, ta I, I talked to some people in the industry and one of them was like, oh yeah, crypto night ASIC. I could tape that out in 15 days, prototype it, get it up to the line in another 15 days. And on day 31, I could be rolling out crypto night ASICs. I'm like, oh, okay. So the six month timeline uh, doesn't work when someone can whip together an ASIC in 31 days. Um, so we, we realize like this is definitely very much an unsustainable thing. So what we've done at this fork is we've added in random integer math. So it's called crypto now R, which is, uh, or sorry, crypto night R, which is, uh, just version four our variant four. And what that does is it adds random integer math. So based on the block height, it's going to generate a bunch of random instructions, like add these numbers, then subtract, then rotate a bit, then multiply, then Zor. And so it kind of makes us just like string of instructions that a CPU and a GPU being flexible can follow the string of instructions and an ASIC being very, very uh, single-mindedly ability uh, can't do that. So 
based on uh, in people I've been talking to in the industry, it sounds like the Kryptonite R algorithm probably is ASIC resistant. I'm not betting, not betting on it, but is most likely ASIC resistant. Um, it should be level field for CPU and GPU and FPGAs might be able to get like a six to seven times speed up, but that that to me is like a, a little bit more reasonable. It's not that like orders and orders of magnitude. So that's the approach we've been doing. Um, and then kind of something you alluded to is, uh, you know, what if we go the other way and we want to, if we want to make this egalitarian, instead of getting rid of the ASICs, can we get everyone an ASIC? Um, and side note, this is a very contentious topic. Everything that follows is my personal opinion. Um, so the, I think that when we get to a point where someone can go out and buy a Kryptonite ASIC for the same cost of buying a GPU, then I, then I think we're good, right? People can, if people can go out buy GPUs and make this egalitarian network and they have the option to do ASICs, uh, then I think we kind of come back to the same place where sure, now we're both paying cheaper energy per hash, but we're all on the same playing field. Um, so I'm, I'm definitely very open to going either way. And I think there could be a, a bright, shiny future where we just don't have ASICs and everyone stays CPU, GPU. And there could also be a bright, shiny future where two thirds of Monero users have a little box in their kitchen that's mining and generating a little bit of income on their ASIC. Um, so I'm very much open to seeing how that unfolds. Mm -hmm. And there's a big community meeting being scheduled to discuss that. Uh, if you go to the GitHub, there's there's a topic on, on where to go with that. Um, yeah, we were trying to get one of the, uh, the ASIC producers on the show also to talk about uh, that. Um, <laughs> So do you? I have you. Have you been able to? Uh, I'm able to ask around. Yeah, I've been talking to to one guy. We'll we'll see what happens. Yeah, we'll talk off uh, channel. Yeah. Um. So, random. What's your thought on random X? Then, do you think like so? You do think that will suit the purpose for for some time, or you think even that can potentially an ASIC could potentially be made? For um, I'm not, I'm going to have to not comment on that because, uh, really these, this kind of pouch week work comes down to very low level stuff. Um, I think in Python, I think in Matlab, I think very high level, um, and really designing proof of work stuff is you need to be like way down in the software. And on top of that, you also need to have knowledge of the hardware that's going to be designed to mimic that software, mm -hmm. uh, which is definitely outside my wheelhouse. So I can't really comment on the viability of random X. Um, I'm optimistic. We'll see, but okay. yeah. All right. Uh, let me see what else I had in my notes here. I guess I just wanted to ask you uh, some of like the, the bigger questions in Monero that I always like to ask people anyway. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of like this. So, I mean, the, the issue of Monero being perfectly uh, binding or blinding and therefore it can't be perfectly uh, binding. Um, is that, I, I'm, I'm, I'm still kind of trying to find out the ultimate truth there is that is that a kind of a law of nature uh, a law of mathematics a law of cryptography or um, can we or can we improve in that area as well and eventually have have both that's also that's an interesting question um definitely more of a cryptography question um i'm usually looking for signal from like a empirical data not signal leakage out of uh out of crypto cryptographic stuff 
I I pinged Sarong about it and got a little bit of an explanation um, on how it has to do with kind of hiding the value and if there can be collisions or different things that create the same one. Um, but I think I would probably mangle the explanation. <laughs> um, so I might I might defer that to one of the cryptographers, a little bit outside of my wheelhouse. Okay, figured figured I'd ask. Yeah, yeah. Um, let me see. Is there yeah any other any other Monero topics you want to touch on? I think we uh we did a lot. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I think we I think we covered everything out of the upgrade um and kind of the things I'm looking forward to for the next fork. So that's uh, most of what's on my mind. I think uh, the other big thing Master Monero will be talking about soon. So. Yeah, would love to have you guys. Like you said, if we could have the maybe a group of people on, right? Everyone. Yeah, yeah. Not at, I guess obviously not everyone. But uh, yeah, there you know, were like five some... of us. Uh, Sarah Hack was the lead author and put together just an absolute rock star team. We had Justin as the publisher, um, Gustav as the like illustrator or as the designer, um, and Andras did amazing illustrations. Um, and they're all really friendly people. I have to say, we worked together for the better part of a year, and it was just an absolutely phenomenal process. So uh, I, I have been talking with Sarah Hack off-channel, and apparently the e, uh, electronic version is very close to completion. So okay, um, yeah, looking forward to that. It's been, that. That's been a fun journey. And you said a lot of these guys you haven't even spoken to yourself in, in person, or right? I've met Justin in person, uh, Samsung Galaxy player. Mm -hmm. The other ones I have not. I actually don't even know where some of them are located. You know, it's all, we, we communicated mostly by Trello board, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah. By the end, we had to, after eight months of uh, editing, we had a Trello board with just like thousands of cards. <laughs> but, no, I think, I think the book was, you know, obviously very well done and um, surprisingly easy to understand. Oh, that was the goal. That's good. Which is hard to do for Monero. Um, <laughs> are you going to any of the? I think I saw you're going to like the Monero Con. That's oh, in yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh -huh. The um, that's coming up. I think is it June twenty second or something like that. Yeah, June twenty second and twenty third. Yeah. So I would say anyone who's watching and can get out to the Monero conference, you should. It's uh. I mean, the conferences are really fun. Uh, part of it, of course, is you know talks and new tech and all of that. But it's also really neat to meet people that I've only had a handle associated with and be like, oh, wait, you have a face. And, uh, you know, um, and there's so many people in the community that I'd love to meet. So I hope you all come out and join us. Uh, join us for that. Yeah, we'll be there as well. Uh, wow. Very excited for that one. And then the Magical Crypto Conference. Are you going to, to that? Uh, when and where's that? That's in New York. Um, they're throwing it right before the New York consensus event. It's on May 11th and 12th. Well, um, I already have my tickets. What's that? I already have my tickets for consensus, so I might actually. I haven't. I have my. I registered for that. I haven't booked the plane tickets yet. Uh, I called it the Magical Crypto Conference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You should definitely uh, check that one out. We're gonna. We're gonna be a media sponsor for that as well, and obviously, you know, like Fluffy Ponies behind that in a very big way. Um, nice. So they're they're trying to make it's it's kind of like a a, a, a like a, a little rebellion against uh, consensus um, having their own little conference beforehand. I think everybody have you ever been to consensus? Nope, it'll be my first time. Oh, okay. I think there were a lot a lot of complaints that it was 
becoming too much about the uh, you know the scam coins and not enough about you know the real projects. Interesting. So uh, a re- you know, in reaction to that, uh, so it should be an interesting one. You should. Yeah, uh, I'll try to come out for that. Yeah, you should definitely check that out. And then uh, we're looking to throw a Monero after party that week, so we'll. Uh, oh, well, yeah, I'll definitely be there. I'll be posted on Reddit soon as well. Awesome. All right. But uh, yeah, thanks for coming on. Yeah, look forward to speaking to you again um, about the book. If we could put that together, that'd be great. Yeah. And uh, I guess I'll be seeing you at these conferences. Yeah, this has been great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for your time. Yeah, have a good one. All right, you too.